Well, if you are joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are in a series in the book of John. And, uh, you know, the theme of darkness and light is a key theme in John. And, uh, you know, I think something we can probably all agree on when it comes to darkness is that there's some, there's some truths about darkness. Uh, there's some observations I've made that there's several things that, that thrive in the darkness. And one of those is fear, right? Fear thrives in the darkness. I remember one time I was hunting, or uh, not hunting, but hiking with a friend of mine, and we were doing a backpack trip into this hot springs, Conundrum Hot Springs up by Aspen, and uh, we left late in the day, right before sunset, and we got out on that trail, and it's like an eight-mile hike in, you know, multiple hours, and the moon kind of came up a little bit, and every bush was a bear, you ever been on one of those hikes? You're like, bear, bear, stop, shine the flashlight. Or thankfully, we, we didn't encounter any bears, um, but we were a little bit scared. But in the dark, there's always an awareness of a threat, isn't there? There's always an um, uneasiness. And we just know this uh, throughout humanity, right? Because a lot of times, things that, that shouldn't happen, happen in the darkness. And so there is uh, a fear. There's also, I think, in the darkness, there's deception, and some of that is like you, you can't, literally can't see what's right in front of your face a lot of times. I remember when I was uh, 12 years old, I went and got certified for scuba diving at Lake Powell, and they taught us how to do this, um, this compass navigation. So if you ever went diving at night or, or even in just in murky water, you completely lose your bearings, don't you? And they taught us, like, you have no landmarks, no places, no visibility, and so you can't rely on your senses, you need to rely on something that's accurate because you have no ability to sense direction really in, in the dark, which I think is interesting when it comes to, de to deception. Um, famous author Henry David Thoreau in his book Walden, he said this about humankind. He said, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. And I think there's something about the darkness that, that we identify with that, that we think that there's all kinds of things that are going to really bring fulfillment, you know. Some of them, it's just like staying so busy all the time on a quest for success, and, and that somehow that's going to bring fulfillment, or that, that relationship's going to bring fulfillment, or just filling my day or filling my weekends with fun and activities. Um, that's going to bring that fulfillment. Uh, but when I'm quiet. There's that just feeling of desperation that creeps back in. That's a form of deception. And so deception oftentimes thrives in darkness. And then I also think that shame oftentimes thrives in, in darkness. In fact, I'm willing to bet if we got real honest and had some conversations, probably some of the things that you felt the most shame for have come from decisions made in the dark, right? Now, either that, the actual dark or, uh, you know, metaphorically, the things you tried to hide from the life, the things that you didn't want anybody else to know about in your life. Uh, years ago, a pastor friend of mine uh, that we worked together, and he had this illustration. He had a great point on um, this kind of topic. And he, uh, he had this great main point, and he got up to say it, and he said, um, sin grows best in the dark, which is true, but his, uh, he made a little faux pas, and he included a uh, R after the B on the word best, 
And that was a little awkward. Man, you guys are, you need coffee. You're a little slow. You're like, B, uh, oh, okay, I get it. But it's true. Sin grows best, got to be careful how I say that, in the dark, right? It just does. And so at the very beginning of John's account of the life of Jesus, he writes this in chapter 1. We looked at this back in in April when we first started uh, going through chapter 1. It says this, the true light that gives the light to everyone was coming into the world. That Jesus is the light, and he's coming into a dark world. The problem is that people live in darkness. People are in need of light. People are caught in fear and in deception and in shame. And John describes Jesus as the true light, as the light who's coming into a dark world. This is a, a key theme throughout the book of John. And so as we dive into this portion in chapter 3, the Apostle John starts out on one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible by telling us that there's this man named Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus at night in the dark. And I think it's pretty significant that he points that out. He comes at night to Jesus, and we don't know. Maybe he's ashamed to be seen with Jesus. He's afraid to be associated with them. And we see this because uh, we'll just call him Nick from now on. Uh, Nick is a member of the elite religious ruling class. He's a Pharisee, um, the best of the best, kind of a mixture between a political party and a religious group. Uh, He's part of the ruling council. So in modern terms, it's kind of like being a senator and a cardinal of the Catholic Church kind of combined. Imagine that sort of level of authority in the nation and in religious circles, right? He's an expert in keeping the law of God. I mean, he's really good at being good. And so he comes, and he's going to ask Jesus, and probably he's got his 20-question list to grill Jesus and try to figure out who does he think he is. Does he think he's the Messiah? You know, what evidence? They think he's from God because he's clearly been doing a lot of amazing things by the power of God, but they're trying to feel out for who is this guy. And before Nick can even get a question out, Jesus totally hijacks the conversation. He takes the conversation and goes into, in a completely different direction. He actually speaks directly to a deeper issue that's on Nick's heart, a deeper issue that Nick has been dealing with. And that is that, that uncertainty, that fear of what if what I have done isn't enough to, to get me in with God. Like, I know I've been good, but what if that's not enough? What if that's not all about? And so Jesus looks at him and says, uh, if anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, if anyone wants to be part of what God is doing to have life in him, uh, you must be born again. It's not about being born into the right family, man. You've got your, you know, you've got your ancestry traced all the way back to Moses or all the way back to Abraham. You're in that way, but that's not it. Doesn't matter if you're raised in, you know, a church home, right? It's, it's not trying really hard to keep the law and do it perfectly. You must be born again. Something must actually happen on the inside. He says you must be born of the Spirit. That you are more than a physical body. You, you are spiritual and your spirit must receive, must encounter new birth. Like Paul says, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. you you got to be made alive, actually. And that's what Jesus tells him, and it's so hard 
for him to understand. In fact, picking up right where we left off last week, as Jesus expresses him this to Nicodemus and says, um, you must be born again, he, he like this blows his mind. He responds in verse 9, how can this be? <laughs> like He's just sort of mind-blown, right? How can this be? I don't get it. This is so different than everything I've always thought growing up. And Jesus has the ability to do that, to completely uh, rearrange and shift things in our life and shift our understanding. And so then Jesus answers to him, and, and he says this. He says, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Nick, you, you should know this. You're one of the primary teachers, respected teachers in Israel. This is what all the prophets spoke about. This is that new covenant hope that, that you've been longing for, that you've been waiting for, that you've been anticipating. That there would come a time when he would write his law on our hearts, when he'd give you the ability to in your heart actually obey what he's called, the way he's called you to live. This is the wonderful, this is the beautiful thing. And yes, it's a shift, but man, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. It's here. It's here. Verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak, Jesus is speaking, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Imagine trying to describe to someone who has um, lived in darkness all their life, or, or even, let's say, someone who was born blind, the splendor of a sunset. My wife loves taking pictures of, of sunsets. Um, she's got some amazing ones, right? And, uh, and there's just, I mean, can you imagine trying to describe a sunset to someone who can't see? And see, Jesus, this is what he's encountering here with Nicodemus, it's like there's, there's something, there's darkness that's blocking you from understanding, that's, that's blinding you to the truth and the splendor and the beauty of what I'm saying right here. And then Jesus goes on. He really challenges Nicodemus. Verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, his favorite way of referring to himself, which, which would draw our, uh, somebody in the day's mind back to the prophet Daniel, this figure, the son of man that was exalted and lifted up. And Jesus you know, points to himself and says, no one has ever gone into heaven except me. And I think Nicodemus at this point starts getting really uncomfortable. I mean, all that born again stuff um, kind of was, was weird and caught him off guard. But at this point, Jesus is actually setting himself up with some kind of exclusive um, relationship or status when it comes to heaven. It's the one who's come from heaven. And then he goes on in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted now, to some of you, that probably like makes absolutely no sense. But to Nicodemus, that would have made perfect sense. Because he, his mind would have immediately flashed back um, to the book of Numbers, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, to one of um, this dramatic um, event that happens to the people of Israel as they're on the way through the desert into the promised land, and there's all these poisonous vipers that come out, and they're biting people, and people are dying in the desert. And 
God actually tells Moses, I want you to set up a, um, a bronze serpent on a pole, and anyone who comes and looks at that will, will get better. They'll be saved. And it's this interesting, I mean, picture 1,500 years before Jesus of what Jesus would do. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, clinics, a lot of uh, medical societies still use this symbol. You, you might recognize it, and that's where it comes from, is, is the first part of the Bible when Moses sets this up. And so Nicodemus is like, whoa, and he equates this ancient symbol of healing with himself now. And this must have been so strange for Nicodemus. And he goes on then in verse 15. So he says, Moses is, just as Moses lifted up the snake, the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes, who believes may have eternal life in him. I think this was really challenging to Nicodemus. See, I think he had to go home and think about this. I mean, to claim to come from heaven, that's a big claim. See, they, they had an idea of Messiah coming, but I don't think they really got the, the whole concept of God in the flesh, the incarnation. God himself coming to this earth, the second person of the Trinity, and I know the Trinity is so hard to understand, the three in one. We, we, we have a hard time wrapping our minds as finite creatures around um, the, the infinite God. But God, the, the Son, coming to this earth, he... he he didn't have a framework for that at this point, right? It was challenging to him. He came from heaven. To, he, he was equating himself with this ancient symbol of healing and salvation. What is that all about? And then he's making entrance into God's kingdom, not a matter of just like being really good like they taught people to do and being really careful that you kept everything to a T and checked off all the boxes. No, actually, he's equating it to, some, to a new spiritual birth that needs to happen inside. Uh, this was a radical shift from the way he thought. He, he was equating it to believing, that having life, believing, not just behaving. This was a radical thing. For Nicodemus. And I think he goes away kind of shell-shocked and kind of confused and a little bit uncomfortable. And he goes back and he reports to this, to this little group probably that's, that is in the Pharisees that kind of, you know, has a positive attitude towards Jesus and shares some of these things and like, wow, that's so confusing. I wonder what he means. And it's interesting, you know, um, John kind of takes a pivot here, and we're going to do that in a second, but but the rest of Nicodemus' story, um, John is going to leave towards the end of his book a little further. He, he pops out of the book, Nicodemus, and then he pops in midway through, and then he pops in at the end. And I, I just want to share that with you. And just spoiler alert, um, now the book's been out a while, right? So hopefully you kind of know generally where the, where the story's going. Um, Jesus dies and rose, rises again. You know that part, right? So... But Nicodemus, uh, as he goes out, um, I, I think something has shifted in his heart. See, he comes out, it comes to Jesus in, in the darkness, but Jesus, he encounters, in Jesus, he encounters the light. And it's challenging. And he has to think about it, and he has to weigh it. 
Then Nicodemus and his other friends, the, the, the ruling people, they, they watch as Jesus becomes more and more popular and huge crowds um, go after him, actually. And, and the rulers are starting to get threatened by Jesus, and so they send guards out to arrest him so they can haul him in and grill him because they don't want Rome thinking there's an uprising. And so they send these guards out, and this is in chapter 7, and um, these guards go out, and instead of arresting Jesus, they just listen to him. And they come back with no Jesus. And the, and the rulers are like, what? Where's Jesus? And they went, nobody's ever talked the way that he has before. <laughs> and they're like, what has he deceived you to? And at this point, I think because of, because of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus, something has shifted in him. And, and he's been like a secret. He, he's admired Jesus from a distance and respected him. And he knows he has to take a stand. And so he stands up uh, to these rulers and he goes, hey, guys, come on, calm down, everybody. Our law, does our law judge a guy before even hearing his side of the story? And then they turn on him and they're like, what is he? Are you from Galilee, too? I mean, they, he's, they just start making fun of him, right? And he's still kind of in the shadows at this point. He's come into the light a little, but he's still in the shadows. He's kind of a secret follower of Jesus. In fact, we see in John, he tells us there's other followers of Jesus who were secret followers of Jesus. They were part of this ruling class, and yet they didn't want to, you know, let anybody know they were associated, but yet they, they, they were beginning to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus just continues to draw bigger and bigger crowds, and then he heal, or he raises a man who's been in the tomb for three days, this incredible miracle, and the people are ready to take him and make him king, and the rulers are so threatened. They're, gonna lose, they're afraid Rome's going to come down, squash out this revolution, take them out of power. They're going to lose everything, all of their position, all their wealth, all their influence. It's going to be gone. And so I think, I, I think Nicodemus and his small group is working behind the scenes, you know, trying to talk some reason into these people, but it doesn't do any good. And the majority, the majority of the ruling class, I think Nicodemus watches in horror as they frame Jesus, as they have him arrested at night, as they drag him in and have him falsely accused, as they whip him so close to the point of death and then make him carry his own cross to Golgotha, where he's crucified. But I think when Jesus is lifted up on that cross, something shifts in Nicodemus' heart. I think he sees something. He remembers, verse 14, he remembers what Jesus told him, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And can you imagine the emotions that may have been like in Nicodemus' heart as he sees the ancient prophecy that he never really understood before? Isaiah 53, he sees it um, fulfilled in front of his very eyes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, I think in this moment, Nicodemus had a major aha. <gasps> That's what he was talking about. That's what this was all about. And you know what's so amazing is, is the next, or just hours later, actually, after, after Jesus is on the cross, um, 
and he gives up his spirit, and the earthquake happens, and the sky turns dark. Nicodemus and his friend Joseph are filled with courage, and they do something that would have been kind of unthinkable. They actually go before Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And see, here's what's so significant about that is um, if you were crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal, you were not given a decent burial. You were pulled off that cross and thrown on the garbage heap. And it was actually illegal to take that body and give it a decent burial. But people would oftentimes bribe the guards or something because they had such a a value of giving someone a good burial in, in the culture. But you wouldn't go openly and identify yourself with a criminal. That would be awful for your reputation. But Nicodemus and Joseph at this point, Joseph, this very wealthy man, and Nicodemus, this powerful leader, they go together to Pilate, who's a little surprised that actually Jesus is dead already because it's only been a few hours, and he confirms that with the guard. And um, they ask, can we have the body of Jesus? And they take Jesus' body, and they embalm him, in 75 pounds of spices and linen that goes around and wraps all the way around his body and around his face. Cover him with spices. This was the burial custom. And then they place him in a brand new tomb, a tomb that was built actually for Joseph. And they roll a giant stone in front of it. And as they say, the rest is history, right? (laughs) Because on Sunday, Jesus comes out of that tomb. And here's what's so significant is the role that Nicodemus plays in this, in this story as he comes out of the darkness into the light. The role that he plays and the significance of his story is that if Jesus would have just been come, wandered back into town after two or three hours, you know, after, on the cross, everybody would have gone, well, he must not have really been dead. But because of the care that these powerful, influential men took in caring for the body, oh boy, they confirmed he was dead. And then if he wasn't already, being embalmed like that would have killed him. And this gave the early followers of Jesus such a confidence in the fact that when they saw the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, he was indeed risen from the dead. And this is one of the things that propelled the message of our faith throughout this world. And he played a key role in why you and I are sitting here today worshiping Jesus. And that is amazing story. And I think as the Apostle John interviews him, I I, I just see John after this all, and I I think Nicodemus probably comes into the community of, of faith in whatever way that looks like, right? He stood up. He's he's worked on Jesus' behalf. Joseph, this this other guy, influential guy, is also a secret follower of Jesus. Well, now they kind of came out into the public. They stepped into the light, right? And I think as John interviews Nicodemus later, and Nicodemus tells him this amazing story and seeing Jesus on the cross and putting the things together, it's like John um, takes up his pen after he records this conversation, and he writes some of the most famous words ever written in history. And this is John's commentary on his conversation with Nicodemus. Verse 16 Words I bet many of you know by heart. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
some of the most wonderful, powerful, saving words ever spoken in humanity's history. And you know what we see in here is the nature of the heart of God, that God, the Father heart of God, as we address our Father in heaven, we have a Father who is characterized by love. I know that relating to God as a father is difficult for some people because of relationships or hurts. But in our father, you have a perfect, loving, heavenly father. Like that song says, he's a good, good father. He's perfect in all of his ways. That's, our, that's the heart of our father, God. Our heart, uh, and not just that, he, he's, a, he's a God who loved. He's holy. He's righteous. And one scholar says that the heart of his holiness is his love. He's holy, he's righteous, he's loving. And he's a God, the the heart of God is that he gives. Can you imagine giving your only child if you're a parent? No. You would do just about anything to save your child. He's a God who gives, who sacrifices for us. And then it's the nature of salvation, too, that we see in this verse. It's, it's believing in. It's believing in. It's illustrated, right? And this is really interesting because John takes these two little Greek words, believe in, in the Greek, that aren't usually used together. In fact, in all of ancient Greek literature, they're never used together like this. But John's like, I just need to con- communicate this point adequately, of what I mean here. And, and I love using this example, and some of you have seen it, right? This is a stool. I can place this stool here and say, oh, I believe there's a stool. How many of you believe there's a stool there, right? But it's an entirely different thing for me to look at that stool versus me to come over and trust that stool and sit down, right? It's a demonstration that I, I'm trusting in this, I remember uh, climbing, uh, doing rappelling at Camp Red Cloud up in the San Juan Mountains years ago. And you'd back up to that edge, and they'd tell you this little climbing rope can hold thousands of pounds. We could drop a van off here, it'd be fine. And they hook you up to it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I believe it, right? Yeah, that's a great little rope. And then they back you up to the edge, and what do they tell you to do? Lean back. And as you lean back, that's your demonstration that you really trust that rope, right? As you place your trust in it. And that's kind of at the heart of what John's saying here. Whoever believes in, trusts in him for salvation would have eternal life. He goes on. See, this is great because so many times, I mean, John 3.16 is so well known, it's almost become a cliché. You see it on a sign at the football game. That's wonderful. That's, that's wonderful. But so many of us have that memorized by heart. But it's in the context of these, these following three or four verses here that he really um, dives into this theme of darkness and light. He, he says this in 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What is the nature of God? What is the nature of the heart of God? It's not a nature of condemnation towards you. It's a a nature of rescue and salvation towards you. 
And that's a beautiful thing. The goal of of the light coming into darkness is not to shame you, but to clean you and save you. Let me put it this way. Imagine having a toddler. How many of you had some dramatic blowouts? Yeah. How many of you had a blowout this morning? Anyone? Not you, personally, hopefully. I mean, your your babies. Uh, But imagine, like, having a toddler, because this happens, right? And they're a little, like, they're getting to that age where they're still in diapers, but, you know, they should be not in diapers too much longer, but they're kind of mobile, and they have an awful blowout everywhere, which happens, right? (laughs) And instead of running to you with their arms out and going poopy, which is what they should do, they think, oh, my goodness, I'm dirty. And so they put on their full-length onesie on top of all that nasty mess. For many people, that's kind of their reaction to a God who comes into this world to save them and rescue them, is to cover up what I'm ashamed about, to try to hide it, to try not to let anybody in to see this mess, instead of running and saying, poopy. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is such a powerful, powerful sentence. See, the Jewish idea is you were born into God's family. Just You were born into, you know, you can trace your ancestry. You're in. And as long as you don't blow it too bad and become an awful person, you pretty much can tip the scales in your favor and be accepted. Our culture idea is this. You are born, you exist, therefore you're in. Trust me, as a pastor, I've done a whole lot of funerals. And at a funeral, the the point is bringing comfort and bringing hope. And, man, I preach the gospel um, every chance I get, but I've done some really rough ones. And there is a cultural idea that everyone goes to a better place And that cultural idea is not scriptural. There is a reality of heaven and hell. There's a reality of of eternity. And not everyone receives eternal life because people reject the truth, reject God, and do not embrace him. Augustine, the famous forefather of the faith, I I quoted this last week, but I thought it was so appropriate. He says this, the problem is not that we sin, but that we are in a state of sin that needs a comprehensive solution. And the message of the scripture is not that somehow um, we can solve all our problems. We're pretty good at the core. The message is actually you're dead in your sins and transgressions. You were born an enemy of God in your heart. And you know, like nobody had to teach you to be selfish and self-centered, that came naturally, didn't it? And see, this is, this is the heart of what God's saying. It's like his heart isn't condemnation towards the world, but those that, that reject the truth, the light, those who reject him, they stand condemned already because you were born in sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news of the gospel really begins with the bad news that we are a fallen human race. 
And our first reaction towards that fallenness was shrinking back in shame and trying to cover it up ourselves. If you remember when Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 cover their shame with fig leaves. And the heart of the gospel is he's coming to deal with that shame. But you need to step into the light. You need to embrace what he's done. Verse 19, John says this, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. There's this famous, uh, he was an agnostic, and he was working with his, uh, his atheist friend, actually, and they were trying to calculate out the statistical probability of one cell emerging by chance instead of by um, intelligent design. And they calculated that chance to be 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. One chance in 10 with 40,000 zeros behind it. That is statistically impossible. And actually, they know that. And they came to the conclusion, it was a big newspaper article, there must be a God. And what was really interesting as you read through this article is a little bit further down, um, after the headline, there must be a, a God, as you read through it, it comes to this, this statement, like they said, but we're still looking for a way around our conclusions. That actually reveals a lot about the heart of humanity, I think. My dad, who uh, many of you know, he leads an organization and travels and speaks all over the, the world at churches and universities. And he was doing a lecture at a university, and one of the atheist professors came in and basically said, yeah, you know, I like the words of Jesus, but I don't like that whole divinity thing because I don't want to be accountable to a God. It's a very honest conclusion. I actually have a lot of respect for the honesty that he showed in that. Because if there is a God who has created you, there is a God who defines what truth is. And our culture likes to say, you have your truth and I have my truth and just live out your truth. And the heart of what Jesus would say is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that I define truth, that if there's a God who created you, who forms you, um, like the Psalms say, in your innermost parts in your mother's womb, he gets to say what truth is, because he has created truth. And you can either choose to come into the light and align your life with his truth, or not. But joy and peace and freedom from shame and fear and deception come when you choose to step into the light. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth and comes, in, uh, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, there's this illusion we have that the darkness blinds us to, actually, and that is that there's things that are secret. Now, you can hide things from people. But God sees everything. He knows you. And, and the beautiful message of the gospel is he stepped in to save you anyway. But the illusion is somehow if I keep these things in the darkness, they don't come out. And that's just not simply 
the truth. I remember I, I, I worked downtown uh, for a while years ago in this building, the Sentinel Square building, old Daily Sentinel building. And there's this courtyard down there. And I remember walking in to, to work one day, and I saw the landlord on the security cameras. I'm like, what you doing? And he's like, well, I'm trying to find the source of a mess. Apparently, somebody stumbled out of a bar uh, late at night and uh, couldn't find the public restroom. So they decided to find a dark little corner to relieve themselves in right in front of the security camera. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Didn't look like it was seen. <laughs> and we're still laughing about it 11 years later. <laughs> but that really um, actually defines how so many people live their lives and the illusion that the darkness brings and the deception that the darkness brings. And see, to, to Nicodemus and to people who emphasize this external obedience to the law, um, it, it was always about looking good on the inside. And Jesus continually, if you read through all the Gospels, what he continually did is he emphasized not what was on the outside, but what was on the inside. He constantly confronted the self-righteousness of these people, the fact that they, they said, hey, look, look how well I'm checking off the boxes. Look how well I'm keeping this list of laws. I'm in. I'm fine. And Jesus said, no, you need to recognize your need for a savior. You need to come into the light. He looked at him and he said, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. Look pretty on the outside and on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. You're like a nasty dish. And this is something your, your teenager would do, um, probably. <laughs> this was wiped on the outside and still completely nasty on the inside, right? Some of you are like, yep, that's my sink. And he looked at these people, and, and he constantly confronted their self-righteousness. And see, the message of the truth and the light is that you need to come out of the darkness. You need to experience the light. You need to experience transformation. And for Nicodemus, the challenge of coming into the life was to step out of his self-righteousness and embrace his need for a savior. And I think it was actually the recognition of this amazing thing that Jesus did for him as he saw Jesus give up his life that gave him the courage to live his life for Jesus. And see, this good news that John shares, let's put 16 back up there. This good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. These words are as wonderful and as true as they were 2,000 years ago when Jesus shared and spoke and had this conversation with Nicodemus. I'm going to invite Ben to come up and just play a little as we close here. This brings freedom from fear, part of the gospel, from deception, from shame. Fear in that if you're trying to relate to God from the standpoint of, is what I've got enough? Have I tipped the scales enough in my favor? Man, if that's your way of relating to God, you always have this fear and uncertainty because you should, because the question is, no one knows how good is good enough, right? 
which is why Jesus looked at Nicodemus, this guy who is the best of the best, and said, you must be born again. You must receive the gift. You must come into the light. Brings freedom from deception, that he invites you to see things the way they really are, to let go of your truth and embrace the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Gives you freedom from shame because you have the assurance that you have a God who loves you and cares about you and wants you to run into his arms and not shrink back in fear. That's his heart towards you, not of condemnation. And it's also a challenge that you never become a person who stops walking into the light. See, the overflow of a heart that has embraced the love of the Father and that has received this free gift of life, it's, it's characterized by a pattern of walking in the light, of stepping into the light, of allowing him to shine the light of truth onto our lives. You know, one of the last things John writes in one of his little epistles, his letters to a church, to Christians like you and me, he writes this in 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5. This is such a huge theme, light and darkness for the Apostle John. He says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, I love this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And here's what I want to leave you with is this question, what is your next step into the light? See, some of you, you embraced Jesus years and years ago. But there's been some time now where you would say, I don't have fellowship. There's no closeness. There's no intimacy in my life with Jesus and with God the Father. And the reason for that is you haven't been walking in the light. There's areas where you've crept back into the darkness and you've allowed things to fester and maybe it's somewhere you've, you've gone with um, in your heart. Maybe it's a, you know, a, a relationship you've been flirting with. Maybe it's somewhere you go on the internet. Maybe it's that your heart has become greedy and not focused on the kingdom anymore. It's become all about yourself. You've just gotten busy and distracted. You've, you've begun numbing yourself to life to cope. I I don't know. And you know that's been creating barriers between you and God because you feel farther from him than you have perhaps in years. The challenge is to step back into the light. Freedom is found moving into the light. And it's an ongoing process. So many times the shame creeps back in because you're like, well, I was forgiven, but then I still struggle with this. It's an ongoing process of embracing it and responding and understanding his heart is still a heart of compassion and love towards you and forgiveness. And you need to just step back into the light.
You need to embrace that. You know, usually it happens in the community. He says, uh, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other. He hasn't put you here to do it alone. When we talk about gospel-focused friends and iron sharpness, iron relationships, you're meant to have those relationships because you need somebody to help pull you into the light and keep you in the light. That's the big word accountability we use, right? Somebody in your life you can pray for. Is there an area you need to step into the light? If so, I want to challenge you maybe this week that you would find that person, somebody that loves you and cares for you, and invite them into your circumstance and just share it with them and invite them to pray with you. If you don't have that, man, reach out to us. We'll help you. We'd love to talk to you. Help walk through what you're walking through. Maybe there's an area you've been hiding in the shadows, meaning like Nicodemus, you've sort of been secret about your relationship with Jesus, and he's calling you to take a next step. Maybe it's to be baptized. Maybe to have a conversation, to let your neighbor know you follow Jesus and offer to pray for them. I don't know. But you realize there's an area where your life needs to step out and go public for Jesus. Could you stand? For some, like, your step of walking into light is actually, like, responding to the Holy Spirit drawing you right now, whether you're in the room or online, that he's drawing you to respond in faith and receive his eternal life and salvation for the first time. And you know it. You know it. Maybe your heart's beating a little fast. You know that's what he's asking you to do. He's inviting you to receive that, to have that spiritual birth. And if that's you, I just want to invite you. You can pray a prayer, something like this right after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. Lord, I let go of the things I've been trusting in and place my trust fully in you for salvation. Cleanse me, forgive me, welcome me into your family and into your kingdom. I want to live my life for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you. And Father, for all my other friends here, I just ask that you would show them exactly what their step is, Lord, and give them the courage to take it. And pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.